We are in Matthew chapter 11 this morning as we continue our study through this great book, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Bad news and good news. I have bad news and good news. Which do you want first? It was a rhetorical question. There are going to be several questions posed to you in the next 45 minutes or so. Not all of them are to be answered, just so you know. No, most of us, you're right. When we are asked that question, do we want the bad news first or the good news first, we pick the bad news first. We prefer that there be no bad news at all. It's great when someone says, I have good news, exclamation point, end of sentence, nothing else follows, no bad news. But, but sometimes there is bad news, and sometimes we need the bad news. And sometimes we might choose to hear the bad news first, not only to get it out of the way, but because sometimes the bad news and the good news are related. Sometimes hearing the bad news first will help us understand the good news that follows. In Matthew 11, we have before us a passage that has bad news and then good news in that order. We left off last week in the first half of Matthew 11, where Jesus had been interacting with the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, he'd been explaining to them that he is indeed the Christ. And that was evident by his mighty miracles that the Old Testament prophets foretold would come with Messiah. But he also interacted with the crowd. And toward the end of our passage last week, he was indicting the general unbelief and spiritual disinterest of the people of his generation. Well, his rebuke continues in our passage for this week. In fact, it gets even more hard-hitting and direct and specific. In fact, this is actually some of the heaviest and harshest words that Jesus speaks. It's bad news. But before the chapter ends, Jesus will give us some of his warmest and most welcoming words that he ever spoke. Good news. And in between the bad news and the good news of our passage, Jesus also offers some mysterious words, some seemingly enigmatic words, which you're probably not sure whether they're good news or bad news when you first read them. So there are three sections to our passage. See if you can identify the turns as I read. Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works, had done, had mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. So first, the bad news. I put it like this. Condemnation of the comfortable. That's what we have in verses 20 to 24. Condemnation of the comfortable. You may not have recognized all or any of the cities and towns mentioned there. But Jesus is essentially just comparing and contrasting three contemporary Jewish towns with three cities of Old Testament age inhabited by Gentiles. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they were neighboring cities just north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had apparently spent considerable time and done considerable miracles. Now Matthew hasn't told us about all of these miracles in these towns, but no surprise, not everything that happened in Jesus' three-year ministry could be recorded for us in the Bible. But apparently Jesus has done significant miracles. What Matthew says, most of his mighty works, and the general response has been, well, underwhelming. And so Jesus denounces them. Jesus has woes for them. Woe, like the prophets of the Old Testament who began their declarations of judgment with that one word, woe, woe to you. That little word, woe, implies a mixture of righteous anger and pity and warning of impending judgment but because that judgment isn't hitting just yet, it also implies the possibility of judgment averted if they respond to the word of warning and woe. And thus far, these people had heard and seen much of Jesus' power and compassion, and they did not repent, verse 20. They didn't believe, and they didn't follow Jesus. They weren't, as some other towns, antagonistic to Jesus. They were just indifferent, apathetic, comfortable. They didn't connect the dots that Jesus had articulated for the disciples of John the Baptist, which we saw last week. Remember, Jesus said, well, if the blind see, and if the deaf hear, and the lame walk, and the dead are raised, then Messiah has come. And it is me. And so if God's man, the king, has arrived, attested to you by mighty works, well then you must align yourself fully with him. Now is not the time for business as usual, but for repenting and turning to him and believing and following him. But they saw the mighty works, the undeniable mighty works of God, and they yawned. They were self-sufficient. They saw Jesus' miracles, and it didn't change a thing for them. And so Jesus makes this stinging indictment that if the cities of Tyre and Sidon, those infamous cities of pagan idolatry and opposition to God's people back in Old Testament days, if they had witnessed the mighty deeds that the towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum did, they would have repented long ago. By the way, if you're not familiar with that word repent, it means to turn from one thing to turn to another thing. So in this case, it means to turn from sin and whatever you were trusting in as your means of salvation and you turn to something in this case it's jesus turn to him well the same goes for that most infamously wicked of cities in old testament days sodom sodom forever hitched with gomorrah since genesis 18 but now even a byword today People speak of, you know, Las Vegas being like a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps. A lot goes on there. That's what they mean. So Sodom, 
if the works that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, their judgment would have been averted because they would have repented. Wicked Sodom would have repented if they saw what the people of Capernaum saw. And so Capernaum will not be exalted to the heaven like they thought, further showing their haughty, comfortable, self-sufficient attitude. No, they will be brought down to Hades or hell. Unmistakable and unavoidable in all this. Well, two things. That there is a final reckoning to come. And secondly, what we do with Jesus is the deciding factor. That's what is unmistakable and unavoidable in what Jesus is saying here. There is a final reckoning coming with only two possible eternal destinies. It's called the day of judgment, twice in our passage, and then called Hades or hell. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to flee. We may not like the idea of an end-time, universal, eternal judgment. But denying it is actually a satanic strategy that goes back to the temptation in the garden in Genesis 3, where the serpent said to Eve, you will not surely die if you eat of the tree. He was denying judgment. Now there are all kinds of legitimate questions about hell and eternal suffering and the goodness of God. Questions that I can't take time to answer here this morning. Perhaps a good book on hell would be helpful to you. Let me know if you'd like a recommendation. But let's just for now acknowledge that Jesus is unmistakable and it's unavoidable what he thinks about life after death. But the other thing here that is unavoidable, unmistakable, is that what we do with Jesus is the deciding factor of that eternal destiny. Wasn't that the point of the confrontation to those tri-cities of Galilee? They had seen Jesus' mighty works, and it didn't move them at all. It didn't change them at all. They, they didn't see the significance. And their lack of seeing the significance was a matter of eternal significance for them. Now, the miracles of Jesus don't create faith. It's not like you see a miracle and poof, you believe. Plenty of people saw the miracles of Jesus and didn't believe. Here are three cities as examples. And so we sure shouldn't think today, we shouldn't make the mistake of saying, well, I'd believe if only I got to see Jesus do some real powerful, undeniable miracle thing. No, you probably wouldn't. But, the unmistakable, undeniable miracles that he did perform when he walked this earth did confirm for people reason to believe. Those miracles were signs. They signified something. They signified who he is, what he came to do, and what era this now was, that this was the time that God had been promising all along, that, that God was beginning to overturn the curse in these little microcosms of healing, removing sickness and death, or casting out demons. These signs were to signify. Jesus told us the principle elsewhere in Luke 12 that to whom much is given, what? Much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. And the citizens of Charizan and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they, 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 had, they knew more and had seen more than those wicked cities of Old Testament days like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. They knew better. They, these people, these Jewish people, had the Bible. And now they had the Son of God in the flesh before their eyes. And they heard His fresh teaching. They saw his compassion, and they witnessed his curse-conquering power. 
And so the most shocking thing that Jesus says here, at least for the first hearers in the audience there, the most shocking thing is that judgment would actually be worse for fairly moral Jewish towns who didn't embrace Jesus than it would be for infamously wicked Gentile cities like Sodom. And that should grab our attention. Maybe you've been playing it cool with Jesus. You're here. You're kind of interested. You're still skeptical. But you'd like to, as much as you can, play it neutral. Be Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. But you keep hearing more about him. You keep reading more about him. To whom much is given, much is required. You can pretend to stand on the sidelines for the rest of your life, but that delusion of neutrality will eventually vanish when you die or when Jesus returns, whatever comes first. Don't, don't wait for that. Don't wait for that. Jesus wants to shock you out of that right now. And brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, let's keep applying the same principle to our lives, to whom much is given, much is required. That's a terrifying thing to consider for 21st century Americans who have Bible access and learning at our fingertips so inexpensively in a way that different parts of the world and surely every age before hasn't had. It's a bit terrifying for this preacher to think of the amount of Bible study that I do and there's a lot of responsibility to live in line with that. This applies not only to our conversion but also to our Christian life. And because we have been given so much, and because we've been shown so much, and because we have such amazing resources at our fingertips, we dare not yawn, but we take in and take advantage. Secondly, we've got these mysterious words, what I called revelation to the unexpected. Now let me read it again, just because it's been a while since we were looking at it, and I've lost my page with my Bible on it. Here it is, verses 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There's more to come after that, but that's enough to get us started about this revelation to the unexpected. In the midst of a prayer, a public prayer that Jesus apparently wanted everyone to hear, Jesus thanks his heavenly Father that he has hidden some things from some and revealed some things to others. Now, whatever that means, whatever comes after that, Whatever that is teaching us, let's notice right up front that it comes to us through Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving to his Father. It's, it comes to us in a note of praise from Jesus. Jesus thinks that this stuff is good. We think it's confusing, maybe even perplexing and troubling. Jesus thinks this stuff is good. It is worthy of celebration, and he's not embarrassed about it. So let's not us be shy or apologetic about what Jesus says here. Let's try to understand it a little bit more than we do. He says that there are apparently spiritual truths. That's really the, the unnamed noun here that is being talked about. Spiritual truths. There are spiritual truths which are hidden from the wise and understanding, but have been revealed to little children. Who are we talking about here? 
Well, with the wise and understanding, it is those who think themselves to be wise, those who think that they have understanding. It's like those which we mentioned last week where Jesus speaks of him coming not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but the sick do. It's not that anyone is naturally well or righteous, but many think that they are. And those who think that they are have no need for a Savior, have no need for a cross, have no need for substitute righteousness. They have no need for a spiritual physician. So the wise and understanding are the the capable, the good enoughs, the self-sufficient ones, those who would say, I got this. And the little children, then, are the opposite. He's not necessarily speaking of literal children here of a certain age, though this could include children among these kind of people, but, but little children here is used as a, an analogy for a, a certain kind of spiritual oriented person the little children are the dependent the needy they are looking to and trusting in another for their very existence what parent has ever been out to a restaurant with their kids and their five-year-old offered to pick up the check (laughs) they don't do that do they they are freeloaders. <laughs> I mean, it's just, they don't know how it gets paid for. They don't know where the money comes from. And we don't expect them to. We don't tell them they're freeloaders, do we? Lazy kids, good for nothing, never picked up the check. Who, who would say that? <laughs> the little children are those who are dependent and needy and desperate. For another's help. And God has hidden things from the wise in understanding. Hidden means that, well, he actually doesn't have to hide things very much because they don't go looking for it, do they? They're, they're wise. They're wise in their own eyes. They don't think they need what they really need. They're self-sufficient. But God has revealed things to little children The fall into sin has corrupted all of our faculties. So we not only need the work of Jesus upon the cross, and we not only need the news of the gift of grace through his work upon the cross, we we need something spiritual to happen before we'll really see it, we'll really grasp it, we'll really get it. And none of us see it, get it, or grasp it because we're good enough or because we're smart enough or because we're sensitive enough. Notice the passage says what the basis is for God hiding and revealing. It's actually Him. It's Him. Notice the end of verse 25, you've revealed them to little children. Then verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Or verse 27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. For some in this room, that's brand new to you, and you think it must not mean what it says. But it actually means means what it says because this isn't the only place in the bible where this is found this is what the apostle paul taught the corinthians as he had them rethink why they were christians and not others he says consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many of you were powerful not many were of noble birth But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. In other words, the unexpected. 
He chose them to bring to nothing the things that are something. Just before that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul put it this way. He says that the Jews demand uh, a sign. And Greeks are looking for wisdom. And then we preach Christ to them. And to the Jews, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, Christ crucified is foolishness. But, but then he says this, but to those who are called, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, now there is mystery here especially in light of the passage before these verses and the ones to come. Before this, Jesus had just condemned unbelieving Galileans because they would not believe. And after this, verse 28 and following, we'll get to it, Jesus calls on all to come. So we believe that the Bible speaks of genuine human responsibility, and everyone is responsible. The call to come to Jesus is genuine and legitimate and should be disseminated far and wide. But we also believe that the Bible teaches about divine sovereignty, God's control of things, and not just his control of well, really important things like world empires and, you know, the general direction of world history or even just the circumstances of our lives and the trials that we go through. We believe God is sovereign over all those things. We also believe he is sovereign in our salvation. We believe that he has to be or we wouldn't be saved. Our spiritual dilemma was so desperate that God not only had to make payment for sin and not only had to bring news of that payment of sin to us through a messenger, but God needed to give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We're born, as it were, spiritually blind. We're born, as it were, with ears that are stopped up. We need the miracle of spiritual sight, the miracle of spiritual hearing. And I can't give that to you. Mom and dad can't give that to you. You can't make it happen for yourself. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray for people to get saved. That's why we go to God about them needing to get saved. I was just talking with someone up front after the service last week about this very thing. And, and I, I mentioned, you know, none of us pray, hey, God, I just want you to know as I, I, I want uncle jim to get saved i want you to know you're off the hook you've done everything you can do i know it's all up to him you you've done everything let's not downplay it you've done you gave your son but i know now it's all up to him and i want you to know that do you pray that way or do you pray Lord, would you get a hold of uncle jim would you give him eyes to see would you turn his heart to repent would you draw him to yourself? Doesn't this explain the stubborn unbelief that we sometimes encounter when we share the gospel? Have you ever presented the gospel and it's the best you've done so far? I mean, it wasn't great, but it was like, uh, that one wasn't bad. <laughs> Someone could have got saved from that one. <laughs> they asked you a couple of hard questions. And this time you actually had the answers. Well, I, I know that where, the, where that is in the Bible, and you showed them, and, and they just didn't get it. You, you told them about grace, and they just kept saying, I'm not good enough. You're like, Ugh, what? How? Well, this is, this is how. It hasn't yet been revealed to them. And so we pray. And really, doesn't this also sort of explain your own story, your own experience of becoming a Christian? When you look back at your conversion experience, at first glance, you might think of, oh, those weeks and months of intellectual wrestling 
and, and questions that needed answers and then getting those answers and then eventually making a decision and then eventually telling others about it and following the Lord. And all that's true and real. That's, I'm not minimizing that one bit. That's not a mirage of inexperience. But that was a first glance look at things. And then sometimes you, you look back and you wonder, well, okay, but what really put me over the edge? Was it me? Was it just my doing? Was it just that I had a friend who had good answers? You remember, as you think back to your own conversion, that you didn't believe, you didn't believe, you didn't believe, you didn't believe. Then you believed. What happened? You didn't get it, didn't get it, didn't get it. And then you got it. And then you couldn't see how you didn't get it. And then all of a sudden, certain passages of the Bible begin, begin to make a whole lot more sense. Like 1 Peter 1.3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Or 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they can't get the gospel. They don't see it. But the God who spoke light into existence at creation can speak light into our dark hearts to shine on the face and show us the grace of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. That's the miracle of conversion. Or, or you might just join Jesus and say, I praise you, Father, that you have revealed these things to a little child like me. And then you might sing with Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but... Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Or perhaps this old hymn that you may haven't ever heard or haven't sung by Jean Ingelow. Written in 1878. Drew, we need some good music put to these lyrics. Listen. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Thou did reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the stormy vexed sea. T'was not so much I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, took hold of me. Now, now back to our passage here, verse 27. It gets even maybe a little more complicated, less controversial, but, but more complicated in verse 27 as Jesus ties all this up into the Godhead, into the inner workings of the Father and Son relationship. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, we get the Father only through Jesus, the Son. There's no access and there's no knowledge of the Father apart from the Son. Jesus alone knows the Father. But Jesus reveals the Father. And he reveals the Father to those whom he chooses to reveal him. And at some point in this journey of theological deliberation... You ask yourself, well, then why me? And I don't know. And I don't know why me. 
but I know it's not because you've earned it, because you deserved it, or because you made it happen, which is just further humbling, isn't it? You might say, but I have more questions. I have a lot of questions, actually, Ryan. I do, too. Some questions can be answered if we had more time and a different context and we could look at other passages. And yet some questions will likely never be answered in this life. We've, we've got to be okay with that. If you're not a Christian, you hear all this and, man, I'm not sure what you think. You might be wondering, will God reveal himself to me like you're speaking of? Well, I pray that he would. And you can pray that he would. And perhaps he is even revealing himself as you have interest to ask that question and to pray that prayer that he would reveal himself more. As for your part, will you come to him like a little child? Ask yourself how you view yourself. Wise, understanding, good enough, self-sufficient, self-made man, or a desperate, dependent little child who doesn't dare try to pick up the check at dinner. Not with this God, not with this Savior, not with this gracious welcome. So now our third section, the good news, an invitation to the broken. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice to whom Jesus addresses this. All who labor and are heavy laden. I think this has to do with something more specific than just referring to those who are beaten down by the difficulties of life. Now in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of his day there, and he says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and place them on the people's shoulders. In other words, they made up laws and commands which were not in the Bible, which were even more rigid and demanding than God's standards. And so that's, I think, what Jesus is referring to, those who were weighed down, heavy laden, burdened, and broken by that kind of system. But, I think even with God's actual laws, what he really teaches, what he really says, and what he really expects, there can be a kind of resolve and commitment and grit to perform a striving to reach a standard of working to, to earn God's favor that produces in people, well, those who feel worn out they've come to the end of themselves all who labor and are heavy laden are, are those who have been on the treadmill of life trying to meet a standard of righteousness or success or or or, or niceness in order to get approval in order to be good enough and that is exhausting. It should be exhausting. I know that there are some here who would say, oh, I'm on the treadmill all right, but I'm doing just great. I just got like a second wind. I'm, I'm nailing life. Maybe not perfectly, but I'm definitely in like the top 10 percentile or something. Well, then you're not going to hear Jesus' invitation like some others will. And, and maybe God will let you wear yourself out on that treadmill sometime soon so that you are ready for this invitation. But many of us have been on that treadmill and fallen off it and bloodied and worn out. We find ourselves tired, exhausted can't do it anymore and then we're ready to hear Jesus say come to me 
Come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And ironically, this is what we do. We rest to receive what he offers, to receive his rest. We come to Jesus, and we rest in him. And there we find true, lasting, eternal rest. This has overtones with the Old Testament Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God said, one out of seven days you will not work that you might trust me. And so they couldn't work. They couldn't work at all. You couldn't even pick up a stick on the Sabbath without breaking it because that would be work. We'll talk about the Sabbath more next week. It becomes a controversy in Matthew chapter 12. But, but what we'll see is that the Sabbath was becoming an illustration, a foreshadow for the gospel. And so for the Christian, every day now is the Sabbath, a spiritual Sabbath, where we have now entered into an eternal Sabbath rest with Jesus as our Sabbath. And that doesn't mean that we don't work anymore doesn't mean we can take seven days off now instead of just one it just means that we have given up trying to justify ourselves before God we've given up trusting in and commending our works to God that's what Paul was getting at in Romans 4 when he contrasted work and faith he says the one who works works to get a wage, and he gets what he deserves. But in the gospel, we don't work for it, but we believe. And that faith is accounted to us as righteousness, far better than we ever could have learned. And that's found in Jesus alone. That's why Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. We actually give up trusting in our work because Jesus went to work for us. That's what the cross is all about. That's what his resurrection is all about. We believe in a, a substitute sacrifice and a substitute righteousness. In other words, Jesus was perfectly righteous all his life, but then died in our place for our sins. And when we believe that he will take our punishment, he also gives us, he grants us by grace through faith all of his righteousness, as if we had done all that he did and did none of the sins that we did. Believing that, trusting in that, resting in that, is what it means to become a Christian. That's it. In order to do so, you turn from whatever else you were doing and giving your energies to, including sin, and you, you rest in Jesus. You trust in his word. If you struggle to believe that, it might help to see Jesus' own disposition toward those who are weak and lowly. What does he say? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. A book that came out about a year or so ago by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly does such a good job at pointing out that this is the only place in the Bible where we find in Jesus' own words what he says about his own heart, about his disposition, about his attitude towards us and his actions. I am gentle and lowly in heart. When Jesus had gone to show us something of his heart, he could have said so many things. I'm resolved. I'm committed. I'm firm. I tell the truth. So many things are true. But, but, but when Jesus peels back the cover of his heart to show it to us, he reveals that he is gentle and lowly. He's a friend of sinners. That's amazing. It's astounding. Notice that it's a personal invitation. He says, come to me. I will give you rest. But it's also an invitation to rest that's not only personal, 
but it's also transformational. Did you see that in verse 29 where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And in verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, this is agricultural language. Farmers would put a yoke on the neck of their cattle and donkeys to pull the plow. And there were heavy yokes out there like those that the Pharisees offered. And yet Jesus says, he has a yoke, but it's, it's not burdensome like that. But he does have a yoke. In other words, he does have ways that he wants us to walk in, such as those described in the Sermon on the Mount. But his ways, he says, are light, not burdensome. They're not burdensome, one, because he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us actually do them gives us a new heart to want to do them, but he also gives us commands that are for our good and for our flourishing. And so we can trust them. We can lean into what he wants of our lives because it actually is what's best for our good. And so, with that in mind, I say come to him. Come to him. We sang earlier, come ye sinners, poor and needed, needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come to him. Have you come to him already? You're a Christian. You're, you're one of my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a Christ follower. Well, keep coming to him. Stay close to him. Keep resting there in him. Keep trusting his work, not your own. Learn of his heart and his ways. Don't shirk, don't shirk his yoke, which is good and kind, for he is gentle and lowly. I'm sure some here would say, yeah, I have come to him, but I'm not near him now. But do you see what kind of Savior this is? Won't this Savior save us all the way to the end? You're in a dry spot right now. You're wayward from the Lord. Your prayers, well, they're basically nil. You sing truth and you're not moved. Come to him. Jesus, gentle and lowly, the friend of sinners, welcomes you. And you do not need to clean yourself up to come to him. That misunderstands the very nature of his welcome. He welcomes sinners. He welcomes the broken. Aren't we reminded of that every time we take the Lord's Supper? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that this hope is outside of ourselves. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus upon that cross, represented in broken bread and spilled blood in the cup. So as we partake of this today, we, we look down at the bread and we see our hope is outside of us and in the finished work of Jesus. He is not in these elements. He remind, he's, he's reminded of in these elements. We're reminded of him and what he's done and it's already done. Now he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and reigns on high until he returns. And until then, he's given us this meal to remember him by, to remember his death, to remember the cost, to remember our need, to remember that it's done, to remember that the hope is all outside of us and not based on yesterday's performance or today's feelings. If you're not yet a Christian, if you've not yet come to him, well, this meal that we're going to partake of in just a bit is not for you. We love you. We're glad you're here. This is actually a great time for you to be here. But Jesus makes clear that this meal is for those who have experienced already that this is true for them. They've embraced Jesus' body and blood for their salvation. If that's not you, 
In just a bit, others are going to get up and go to a table and grab some of these elements. And we would just say, just, just stay put. Just, just keep watching. Praying. Let me give you some directions for those of you who are believers and uh, who will partake with us this morning. If you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus, you're welcome to, to share this meal with us. We have uh, three tables up front and we have four tables in the back. We just ask that you go to whatever one is closest to you. Uh, Drew will be leading us in some singing. It'll feel a little chaotic, it's all right. You just get up whenever you're ready, go to the closest table. At the table, we'd encourage you to take the bread right there and eat of it there. It symbolizes the fact that we come into the kingdom one at a time. We do it one at a time. And yet, we'd ask that you take the cup with you back to your seat. Don't drink of it yet. Hold on to it. We'll wait till everyone has it, and then I'll come up and lead us in taking of the cup together. And that kind of symbolizes the fact that we're in this together. But we're not in this alone. We don't really do this all by ourselves. We share in this bread and in this cup together. So let me pray for us, and then Drew will come and begin leading us, and then you can get up and partake of the bread. Oh Lord, we thank you for the remembrance of Jesus our Savior, for the hearing of his words of welcome again today. And perhaps for some, hearing it as if it's the first time, perhaps for the first time, but, but for some, as if it's the first time, as if you speak it afresh to them personally today. Lord, as we come, as we gaze upon the bread and look into the cup and we are reminded of a hope that is outside of us, a hope that is finished hope, it's, it's settled, Jesus said, it is finished, and then breathed his last. May we be comforted by your grace and comforted by your work, comforted by your warm welcome once again. May we stand in awe and give thanks to you and praise for revealing yourself to us. And Lord, as we take a, just a few moments now to quietly on our own, talk to you privately about our sin, our need, about forgiveness and grace, and to thank you again for it. Would you stir our hearts and make us thankful people for Christ's sake.